Primary Care Knowledge Boost, The Art of Stuck Cases, a framework for managing complexity in primary care. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you're all well. Are you well, Lisa? I'm reasonably well, yes. Thank you, Sarah. Are you well? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm all right. I thought I'd just ask you. I know we've already said that to each other, but it's nice on mic. Um, So thanks for joining us, like I say. Um, We're speaking to Dr. Mark Sporrell, who's a consultant psychiatrist today. He's talking us through his approach to difficult cases. Um, So he's been a consultant psychiatrist for a very long time, as he'll explain, and he's come up with a framework that helps him and his team deal with difficult situations, as he'll explain. So in scenarios where there's quite a lot going on with different patients and there's a lot of different problems and we just feel stuck and this is the kind of framework that he uses yeah exactly it was um it was hard to kind of come at and know how to approach but um we've put together um a scenario based off a lot of different cases that had been experienced through general practice um in uh, our lives mostly sarah's life but it uh, kind of provided the anchor point to be able to use that to jump off from and um, talk through Mark's framework in a kind of structured way with that example in mind. So hopefully you find that useful as well. I think it probably was a good center point for us. I would say that it's probably a bit of an unusual episode for us, but it is, I think, very useful in taking that time to step back and think about those those difficult patients, those things that worry you, that keep you up at night, that make you think, oh, how on earth am I going to deal with that? I think there are some useful tips um, in his framework that can hopefully help some people. Definitely, yeah. And just to explain, you'll hear Lisa ask uh, Mark about the phrase pickleology, um, because when we were discussing about the potential title for the episode, we were talking about the art of stuck cases and when you're stuck with or you feel stuck. And um, he described it as being in a pickle or pickleology. Um, and we had lots of uh, conversations about that off mic, which are really interesting. So that's where the question came from. So we hope you enjoy. Okay, so uh, my name is uh, Mark Sparrow, Dr. Mark Sparrow. Like many of us, I guess there's two sides to me. So I'm a clinician, consultant psychiatrist, but I'm also someone who's got an interest in service design, uh, development, organizational stuff. And so my lifetime has been uh, pursuing both those interests in parallel and trying to get some nice cross-fertilization between those two interests. Uh, in terms of my clinical areas, I guess I started out, um, well, I was a consultant from 30 years ago, so I've been here a long time, uh, but I started out in community psychiatry. Uh, we were trying to develop things called community mental health teams. So I was at the birth of those, if you like, and spent a lot of time in working with GP colleagues in primary care trying to get community mental health to work and then over time I kind of moved around different services I went into areas of rehabilitation into low secure services and then in later years um, I ended up working in um, learning disability and autism with the kind of overlap with forensic um, that sometimes happens in that field and I'm now uh, finished working for the NHS I'm now freelance and I just consult and uh, give opinions where necessary on various things I guess I've probably been involved in design developing you know in collaboration with others you know somewhere between 50 and 15 and 20 new services most people get to launch one or two services so a lot of experience of launching services um so that's that's me and my background it's really varied, Mark. Really interesting uh, path that you've kind of taken um, to end up where you are now. And then, so um, today we've got the, this episode to talk about um, kind of frameworks for dealing with complex patients. And that's what you're here to um, tell us about um, with your framework, which is pickleology. <laughs> uh, this is the debate. <laughs> yes, if I may, um, you'll have noticed from my background that I've covered an awful lot of ground, both in terms of clinical understanding and organizational understanding and over that time it crystallized out for me that there is this there's a real issue about when things get stuck so for the most part there's some fantastic service out there some great ideas great models great conceptual tools but what happens when you run out of road um, and in 
all the different specialties, that phenomena occurs again and again and again. And so I've, I've got into the habit of thinking of that, that phenomena as a pickle. It's not because, um, I, uh, disrespect or have any, uh, sense that this is very, very frustrating and unhappy for some people. But in a sense, what I'm trying to signpost is that at that point, we maybe need to take a step back. And just, just allow some of the kind of intensity of uh, feeling about it to ease off a bit and, and, and take a bit of a long look at what some of the underlying thoughts are that you might have about that. And how do you come back and refresh your care strategy in such a way that you're moving forward or, or feel that you're, you're, you're kind of back in charge and back in control of the situation? It's not that. All things can be solved, but you can, you can reinvigorate positivity into most clinical situations if you take the time to take a step back and look and think. So that's really where I'm coming from. So I use that term pickle because other terms are all a bit po-faced or a bit professional. And you want to be able to talk to people who are at the end of their tether. And sometimes it can be quite disarming to just kind of say, I think we can all agree this is a, this is a bit of a mess. This is a bit of a pickle. We need to have a bit of a think about what we do about it. Um, so that's 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 where that term comes from. Who's it designed for? Well, um, I think that's one of the interesting things talking to you guys is that I have brought it to its most mature formation whilst working in learning disability and autism. Um, but obviously, I've been thinking about this for, for many years in all the different services I've been through. And so I'm quite interested to sort of talk to people from other specialties about it to see, well, does what I'm saying land happily with you guys? So, you know, it might be useful in primary care, it might not be. And the, like you said, that concept is rife in all clinical specialties where you do need to take that step back and think and try and come to a, basically just to have a new light on the situation so you can figure out where to go next. Yeah. And I think it's important because you wouldn't want to do this for every single case in a busy practice, but but there will be sentinel cases where you're you know, it is worth investing the time in doing something methodical to try and, you know, tease out some, some fresh ideas. And interestingly, when you do that, um, I submit you get a lot of learning about some of the other cases that are not that dissimilar. And so you can sometimes, uh, you do quite a lot of good to your overall practice by, by just going through this exercise with, with those key patients. Yeah. Highly transferable skills. Yeah. Um, so we came up with a couple of cases that were quite GP focused to sort of, yeah, to come, to come at it from our angles. Okay. Um, but we've thought we've kind of done amalgamations of difficult cases that we've seen over the years, essentially. Yeah. Um, so we have a, a theoretical Simon. Yes. Um, and we'll sort of use his background and, and him as a sort of jumping off point to, yeah, yeah. to see what the framework is like. So Simon's 46. Um, he's currently of no fixed abode. So he has type 1 diabetes and he used to be a carer for both parents until they died. Since then, he's been struggling with depression and alcoholism and he is sleeping um, sort of rough with and with friends. Um, he has a foot ulcer as well. So we've been seeing him in the practice for his depression and for the foot ulcer and trying to get him to engage with the diabetes as well. Um, so he's struggled with his diabetes. His HbA1c is very high. He tells us he's drinking one to two litres of cider most days. Um, he was under the care of the mental health home treatment team last year um, because he was actively suicidal at the time. But he's no longer under their care. When you're looking through his records, you, we can see that he's missed a lot of appointments with the diabetes team, uh -huh. with many other teams as well. Um, and he's not been for any sort of routine monitoring to check his eyes or his feet for a long time. Um, just for completeness, his medications are quetiapine, uh, metazapine, insulin and cocodamol. Uh, so that's that's Simon. Okay. Uh, so if we start with him, can you sort of describe how you'd use the framework around him? Well, if I can just do a bit of scene setting. Yeah. So uh, the underpinning drivers to the framework are that... I guess our only warrant to interfere in people's lives at all is that we add value in some 
some way. So, so it pulls down heavily on this idea of uh, what generally gets passed off as value-based healthcare. So the idea is where do you find ways of generating value with people uh, that give a sense of moving forward? And part of that is to recognize that there are many sort of dimensions to what's, what matters to people. And so you're, you're not trying to fix everything. You're just trying to map the landscape so that you can pick out those areas where there might be a fragment of progress possible whilst recognizing that other areas that you can't do anything about might stay stuck a bit longer. The philosophy would be that in the round over time, by persisting with it, you know, like getting a mud, a boat off a, a bank of mud, you'd be able to rock it, rock things free, so you get more progress. So that's the kind of point you start from with these sorts of cases. Um, the other point, scene setting bit, I want to do is just to talk about what I call the five principles of value-based healthcare. So principle number one is that you're looking at the individual case. A lot of our practice these days is about people on care pathways. So they're, they're segmented as cohorts of typically like patients that you then can apply generic tools to. So you park that and you move to saying, this particular case is the focus of interest. It's an organizational lens that you look at someone with and you make that case drive all your thinking rather than trying to make, make them fit into something they don't quite fit. So you start off with making that case as, as the focus. Um, that's the first principle. The second principle is that you recognize that each of those cases is unique. There are no two cases the same. So they will have an individual unique network of people involved with them in one shape or another. Um, and the, the, the patterning of issues will be entirely bespoke to them. So you're, you're moving into bespoke territory. Their networks are unique. Uh, the third principle is that the object of the exercise, as I've said, is to generate value. And the point about value, I guess, um, is paying attention to what matters um, to people. But you've also got to do that in the context of knowing that what matters to you as a clinician may not be the same as what matters to the service user or to the carer or to the commissioner or whoever. So you've got these competing uh, notions of value floating around. And so you need to be live to what is, what do you mean by creating value? How do you, how do you pull together resources and get together with someone so that you're driving in the same direction, pulling in the same direction? And in the technical service language, I suppose that's called value co-creation. The fourth principle is that it's not enough just to get things moving in the right direction. You need to build momentum. You know, there needs to be a loop of review, revise, move on, review, revise, move on. It's a continuous process of building, building a story like it's like sort of the sorcerer's apprentice. You build the tune, you build the, the, the rhythm of the case so that uh, you aggregate all the different bits of value as, as they come along. Uh, and you need ways of catching that so that people feel a sense of movement. And if they feel a sense of movement, then it changes the, the, the spirit of what's happening completely. So that's the fourth principle. And the fifth principle is that you can't do service without having a structure, a device, a platform, some way of organizing people into a common ground and you can do that uh, more or less skillfully and so what my framework is about is helping people to reflect about what kind of a service platform have they got going with the service user and are there ways of tweaking that tuning that so that it's more refined more value driven uh, than it was previously and to the extent it does that it's it's very very useful but if you find it's not doing that then that's fine find some other way of doing things but it's just a technique to enable you to look at your care strategy look at your service platform that you happen to have and see whether it's whether it's doing the job you want it to do mm. so that's that's a bit of scene setting so is that so platform can be mainly like different types of people involved in their care and different 
Well, all the platform says is that it's there's an architecture that holds everybody together. So you've got a you've got a bunch of different people. Mm-hmm. You've got a care project, if you like, mm-hmm. which has got different people from different backgrounds who use different language to talk about things. And the only way you can do business is to get people onto the same ground with some shared language and shared knowledge of what's going on in order to say, hey, let's go this way or let's go that way. Yeah. So if we talk about Simon. So Simon, um, I guess the first step is to try and in the process to try and just get a bit more of a grasp of what the predicament is. How do we tune into what matters in Simon's case? And I guess uh, you might say, ask questions like, for example, why are we interested in Simon now? Who's interested in Simon? So if we if if we were to kind of think of this as a role play, you know, you know, might you bring Simon as a case, for example, for discussion amongst others? You might bring Simon himself. You might bring um, community nurses, all sorts of people. What kinds of things would people be saying about Simon? You know, what's Simon like? What's good about him? What is it that worries you about Simon? So if we kind of swing with that, what would you respond to that? I'm thinking about the sort of complex case network that we have. So there's a mm. meeting every week or every second week and you can bring a case and that's the kind of main platform. That's the only time really that yeah. there's any type of multidisciplinary team that's not just in the practice. Yeah. Um, so you might have a social worker there mm. um, and you might have somebody from community nursing, possibly the community link worker, and then they can sort of say a bit of history about what they've seen from Simon, what's worked, what's not. There's often a kind of much longer history than you've realised. Yeah. It might be that you're coming in with fresh eyes, like, oh, I've seen him a couple of times now. He's somebody who worries me. Yeah, yeah. And I've got all these fresh ideas. That's like, And then it, they're like, oh, no, actually, we've been there. We've done yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's a bit like a game of Pictionary where they go over the same diagram. Again, even thicker pencil to try yeah. and move it forward, isn't yeah. it? And I guess the, the, the turn that I would put in at this point would be just to try and crystallize something about can we put into words what we think Simon's predicament is I mean what what would you say his predicament would be I'm just considering yeah it'd be interesting what you think Sarah I, I from my point of view I think it's more from Simon's point of view I think his predicament maybe is that he he doesn't have maybe health literacy doesn't understand the impact that the decisions are having yeah. on his health for not not attending and not looking after his his sugars and and not engaging um, with the health system, um, because he's got a lot of other things to worry about. He currently yeah. doesn't have a home, um, so that is going to be higher up in his worry list um, than his health. That's my sense. I don't know what you think, Sarah. Yeah, I was thinking from his perspective of, of just feeling really stuck in a rut and that things aren't fair and that sort of depressive kind of feeling of everything's so hard. Yeah, why? how on earth can you get through and it's just looking at that simple survival stuff of this sort of feeling of real helplessness and and feeling like you know he's he's given his life to his parents and now things are rubbish and yeah he's he's kind of really on his own and he's just drinking through it and yeah surviving day to day and so so in terms of you talking about this as some kind of a pickle you might say that uh you know he's got an awful lot on his plate yeah he doesn't necessarily have all the tools he needs to perhaps um, navigate through the world as he finds it yes. he's feeling a bit lost he's feeling a bit stuck there's a lot of different things going on and then maybe start to shade in something along the lines of so the time course to this is that do you know what he he was doing all right up until two years ago so this is a man who previously um, he had a bit of bar work maybe or he he had a, a friend that he used to play snooker with or something like that let's just understand how this originates you know he was doing all, all okay or he's doing so so until such a point and then there's been an intensification uh, a sense of stuckness since the parents died so you've got an onset of a of a shift in in his world and how that's been and then on top of that, you've got kind of times where even within that deterioration, there's spikes of things getting worse that have brought him in, in, into crisis. And that there seems to be that kind of drop in function plus spikes of worse function. And the general overall trend is that 
things are slowly getting worse over time or that things are just stuck and not getting better. Either way, you're not looking at a picture of somebody who who you can predict is going to going to get better just by natural processes. So you're starting to describe a world of stuckness and predicament and all those sorts of things. And so the other bit in, in terms of understanding predicaments and pickles is to, to try and just tune into what's the worry. Um, and so there'll be worries on his part. So he might be worried that his life is meaningful at the moment. But, um, you know, there might be others in the room who are worried that he might end up you know, with advanced alcohol disease, or he might end up with severely deteriorated health from his uncontrolled diabetes. Others might worry that he might commit suicide or something like that in one of his more uh, distressed phases. So that's that's the level of worry that we're happening. And what kind of a sort of um, immediacy do we do we have about that? You know, is it that we're, we're worried that you know he won't be here? you know, much longer? Or do we think, you know, if nothing happens over the next six, 12 months, we're going to be a very dire strait. So, so just putting some shape to our, our sense of what kind of a predicament is, is, is useful. So that's just, it's, it's all really just scene setting, but it starts to orientate you to, so then what might add some value then, um, given all that? And I guess another question might be, so notwithstanding all that, what's good about him? It's a kind of recurring motif, if you like. We can spend a lot of time talking about what's, what we're worried about, but what, what's good about him. And do you, do you want to chip in and say, what would you say is good about uh, Simon? He obviously cared for his parents for, for a fair amount of time. So he's got a caring personality, I would say, from that potentially. Yeah. And that he engaged somewhat. So we've got this, I guess that might be why we've brought him is that we feel like there's an opportunity here because we're starting to develop a bond with him. Yeah. And he is seeking some help. And so so that's really helpful because you start to drill down onto what might be particularly useful in this case at this time. You've got somebody who is in this pickle, but you've got a couple of flickers of positivity that you can identify and you can get a sense of yeah there's something to play for here so then that therefore gives you you know what's going to then drive your strategy is is about taking that flame and nurturing it a bit or or mitigating some of the harm so that that flame can have a bit more of a chance so it starts to orientate your thinking in terms of your of of your care strategy Um, so i think that's that's very useful so that's that's kind of the the predicament work. I mean, it's it's not that you can um, operationalize it, you know, manualize it. You can't say to a group of people, you know, with all the cases, you can follow this route to getting a predicament defined. But this kind of discussion with these pro questions help you get to a sense of where you want to be. And quite a useful final clarification is just to. Get some perspective as to whether what what are you trying to do here in terms of whether you're trying to stabilize something, are you trying to move from stabilization to optimizing something that by building skills or competence here and there you could get a bit more function, or are you at the phase where you're trying to drive a fresh start, uh, you know, a transformational change? And people generally sit on the spectrum of, you know, you're either stabilizing it so that people can breathe and, and catch breath or you're trying to improve things and, and try and stop the next crisis from happening. But after a while, when you get to know the case quite well, you can start to conceptualize and imagine what transformational change might look like for such a person. And it's always useful just to have that in the back of your mind when, when you're thinking about cases. So that, that's the kind of the final piece of trying to describe predicaments. So then moving on, you've got, you've got a sense of a predicament, someone who's been stuck for a long time. He does have a history of some very positive features in terms of caring. He's starting to engage. So the worry is if we don't strike now, then the outcome could be quite poor. So let's have a look at his world, the structures around him, the care platform, and see what we might do to uh, to fine-tune it to try and take the chances that, that are there. And so then that introduces uh, the framework that I developed in learning disability and autism uh, with colleagues. I just have to acknowledge my co-developers here. It's uh, Amy Shaw, Lorraine Potts, and myself 
are the the authors of this uh, of this model, and the model is called the Complex Case and Recovery Management Framework. But what it does is it describes a number of dimensions in which value can be generated with someone. And I'll just take you through them one by one, if that's all right. Yeah, perfect. So th- you could take them in any order, but I just happened to like this order, so we'll do it that. So the first, the first area of value is about uh, the circle of support. So people are contextualized within a network of different people. And understanding something about that context gives you opportunities for generating value. And so... With Simon, for example, who's in his world, you might say? And are you able to give me some answers to that? Who's in his world? He's living with a friend. He's got a close friend who he's known for probably the last five years um, from the pub. And um, they drink together. So he's the main friend. He has a brother Mm -hmm. that he does see infrequently who's who has a job and a house. So those are the main two people that you know about. Okay. Um, there's also the healthcare in his life, I guess, because we care about him enough to talk about him in this forum. So there's the um, the yeah. practice nurse, there's the the GP, there's probably the diabetes team, the mental health team. We've seen him before. Yeah. So I think that's it, straight away you can see that um, uh, there's a lot of assets there. There's a lot of positives to say about his social network, and so it's about then drilling down a bit more to look at the shape of that. And if we just break it down a bit, uh, let's talk about uh, friends and carers and family networks first. We might ask ourselves, so what's good about that? How is that helping? How is that driving progress? And we can say straight away that it, it is valuable to him to have a, a friend that he's living with that, that he's got a, a, you know, a good relationship with. I mean, that's just remarkable because we know so many people who don't have that. So that's a big asset there. And then he's got a brother who may not see that often, but again, we know people who don't have brothers or anybody interested in him. So, so he does have contacts within mainstream society and uh, family members who, who are involved. So that's on the positive side. On the concern side, we might then ask, so are there things about those relationships that give us pause? And so we might sort of say, well, to what extent is the friend's relationship with him also a facilitator enablement of, of, of drinking behavior? Um, that's something that we might need to think about. Uh, and similarly, you know, is there anything about his interactions with his brother that give us pause or might want us to think a bit more about? And so what would you say to that? I was immediately thinking that this friend could very well be an enabler um, and thinking that how much of a barrier that could be to him getting better yes it's keeping him off the streets and that's wonderful but how do we how do we get somebody well um Mm -hmm. from there um yeah and i was thinking more along the lines from the brother and the fact that if um simon's been the full-time carer for his parents before they die there might have been a bit of contention there there may be a bit of a broken relationship it's always hard to know when it comes to the end of a parent's life and there's uh, two siblings if there's been a mismatch so there's the potential that there is conflict and so out of that just brief exchange it invites some questions about care strategy so what might one then do you on the one hand these two relationships are potentially very very useful on the other hand they both have various concerns so what can we do to move it more to the positive and away from the concern what what ideas do we have as a, as a clinical team about what we might do this so i guess the social worker might know the other person as well or talking directly to Simon to say, yeah. our concern is that this person could be enabling. What do you think? Or what yeah. is your relationship like with your brother? Yeah, yeah. And so just simple things like that. Has a conversation been had with the friend, with the brother? And of course, there are technical difficulties about doing that and confidentiality. But it's it's not something to shy away from. If it can be done, it might be useful. And if it's a good relationship, you, you can imagine that the friend would be open to uh, a conversation if Simon would allow it. It could be that the brother will be open to a conversation. He's probably gotten all sorts of things in his mind that he feels he could contribute to the discussion that he hasn't been able to. So, So just establishing lines of communication along the lines of, you know, there is worry about Simon wanting things to be better and can you be part of the solution? It makes a huge difference to that part of, the, of his network. It activates them to be value generating with him in a way that they haven't been before. 
So it's just something to explore. It might be it's a damp squib, doesn't happen, but it's just one little thing that wasn't there before we started talking. So that's an example how how we look for ideas. So then moving away from the sort of his informal network to the professional networks. So he's got quite a lot of people involved in, in his uh, professional network. So what's good about the people involved from the professional point of view? I guess he's got a choice of people who he could bond with. Yeah. So, that, so A, lots of people are willing to get involved, which tells you something because quite a lot of the time it's hard to get people involved in cases. So that's, that's really good news. Um, and he's got choices about where he might go. Anything else about the people involved? You've got specialists. Um, which is yeah. always helpful just from a primary care point of view if you've got some specialists that are interested. Yeah. And they could tackle different elements. So you could have, take a multi-pronged attack at that. You can, <laughs> yeah. So it's quite a rich uh, rich network there. So in terms of uh, what what might be concerns about the rich professional network, anything spring to mind? Who's doing what? I think it can be hard to get people to engage when there's um, yeah. when there's a lot of people. Yeah. people can all step yeah. back somebody else's problem because <laughs> yeah. i was just thinking as the gp uh, and a very uh, limited time limited uh, resource getting involved with the brother or with the friend yeah. feels like a, a bit of a stretch for me yeah. may well very much help the case but yeah. just feels a bit above and beyond and yeah. in an ideal world absolutely but are there other professionals where we could try and yeah so straight away, you're seeing the concern, which is about fragmentation of professional network. And you'll see it over and over again, and you're only too familiar with it. So then it invites questions about what can be done to address that fragmentation of clinical network. And I guess a, a parallel point is uh, we may have um, all these people involved, but can that throw us off the scent and think, well, actually, we haven't got X or Y involved who ought to be involved who aren't um, and, and might actually be better than who we've got. So so, so I guess it's, it's a critical review of who's involved, critical in the positive sense of the word, and then thinking how, how do you kind of uh, mitigate fragmentation? And what would be your ideas about what could be done about that in Simon's case? That's where the team would come in because things that I don't often think about are things like the housing team um, mm -hmm. or there is a, a team for people who, with no fixed abode so that they can make sure that if there is gaps in care that they follow them around or uh, community matrons or yeah I was just gonna say probably the um like what you said like an MDT discussion where everyone's together and actually talking about the case can help a bit with fragmentation um because then it's you get a sense of what everyone else knows and the, the things that you don't yeah. know someone else might know so I guess uh, in my world, we've got a long tradition of case management and so, uh, or, or care coordination. And uh, in, in a sense, it's, it's the kind of, it's the elephant in the room. Who, who is going to be the care coordinator? Because that's the ingredient that uh, enables these multidisciplinary things to function. And it's a complicated area in contemporary practice, care coordination, for various reasons. People are happy to do their bit, but it feels scary to be the care coordinator. And so people lean back from doing it. But on the other hand, if you can get care coordination to happen, even if it's done informally, even if it's that do you know what? He is open to the homeless housing team and they've got a caseworker and they're happy to be the person to um, hold the discussions together and to keep the connections going. You've got care coordination without having to have a formally des designated health case manager, which is what tends to be quite hard, hard to do. So on the landscape, can you find some agent who's going to be more likely than the next person to be able to, to function in that role? And then how can you make that person feel it's worth their while? And the way that works is quite critical to creating momentum in, with a case such as Simon. So is, any thoughts on that? How would you how would you make that happen? We've just brought somebody in. I think as part of the more roles in primary care, there's there's a new person in our practice who's a care coordinator. Yeah, and so I think it, that's a good example of something that you might do, uh, but also you can't 
guarantee it. So it's about being pragmatic. You know, you the action from the discussion then is to go and investigate that possibility further and and see where that role would could could be uh, adapted to fulfill this or whether there's somebody else in the network who is better placed to do it i guess it's also about understanding who he's linking in with quite a lot so he might link in quite strongly with his social worker so the social worker might fulfill that role sometimes it's useful not to go over overboard with it but just to kind of allow that that kind of sense of case management to evolve and to, to kind of organically crystallize out. But just have it in mind as part of the care strategy. The more you can get into case management mode, the more you can support the case manager, either by giving them your authority, backing them up, making them feel supported, taking their calls when they're worried about something, giving that feel, or making sure they get training, or making sure that you get off-the-shelf models of case management that they've got to hand so that they can do the job to, to the next level. The more you can beef up that role, the more you enable the rest of the network to be more powerful. The other flipped side to this, not in Simon's case, but in other cases, is that you might find that there's a powerful family member who is fulfilling that role. Now, there's strengths and weaknesses to that. But again, it's about recognizing where naturally it's coming from. And then how do you blend that into your beefing up the the social network, the care circle of sports strategy? So does that make sense? There's a whole load of stuff now surfaced about getting the circle of support working powered up to be value generating and value orientated that wasn't there before the discussion happened and if it adds value then great so uh, shall we move on to the next theme okay so the next theme is about the shared understanding so um, getting everybody onto the same page pulling in the same direction is uh, quite an interesting art and it covers a number of things it's as much about unwritten stuff like are people engaging or are people using the same language or are there working theories in play that are meaningful that have traction so what about simon in simon's case to what extent would you say that people are working off the same page with him it's difficult to know isn't it i wonder if the um You've got things like the the diabetes team maybe aren't aware of the fact that he has no fixed abode now because to them he might just not be attending appointments. I'd say that within within the practice there'll be a relative amount of shared understanding. It's more when you start getting outside to the other teams whether yeah. or not everyone's on the same page. What about Simon? What what's his theory about himself? I guess we don't really know what we I mean we have asked him at some point what would you like your life to look like mm. you know what mm. what ideally would change or Mm. that could help see you know i'd like my own place i'd like to Mm. not be drinking yeah i'd like to not be in pain with this ulcer yeah so are you thinking that he is able to say those sorts of things Uh, they've kind of been asked at various times but maybe not crystallized into a robust sense of this is his agenda but but there's a sense in which it's there if we could cultivate it and i guess it's quite useful when we're talking about all these different themes to sort of have a style of eliciting the positives first and then doing the concerns so on the positive side I think that's really positive that you can say that Simon could put his finger on a few things that would make up an agenda if we could if we could get him there so that's positive and it's backed up by the fact that you're saying that he seems to be a bit more engaged than he has been so there's a, there's a kind of a sense of him starting to form something of a self view about what needs to happen. What about other people? What are the, what's positive about other views? It's hard to know what they're thinking, really. I mean, I suppose we're doing something of an artificial exercise here. They'd be in the room and saying it if, if we could get it set up that way. But, you know, it'd be interesting to know what the diabetes team thought. How do they have him pegged? There's kind of a number of ideas people have about non-attenders. Is he fitting into that role or is he not? You know, so I guess you could look in letters, you know, this poor unfortunate man unfortunately couldn't make it today or clearly he's still drinking and choosing not to come you know you you, you can pick up what's going on in the in the water so 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 just getting a sense of how people are thinking about him is quite important 
In my world, um, we spend quite a lot of time on developing what are called formulations, where you you actually sit down with somebody who's psychological minded and start to sketch together some kind of an organizing idea about what's driving the patterns that you're seeing. And that can be quite useful. But you know, obviously, that's kind of you know, that's worth doing, but it's it's resource intensive. So whether you be able to get that to happen in in your setting, I don't know. But it seems to me that it's something to investigate, I guess. To what extent is there a kind of a common discourse that says, you know, here's where, here's Michael, this is his predicament, this is where we're up to, might, might be just a useful thing to have and to hold and to use as a placeholder for all the professionals involved. So everyone's on the same hymn sheet. And then once you've got that, you can start to sort of make it more sophisticated, more more detailed in various ways. Is that landing all right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so in that context, is it useful to bear in mind that there might well be various tools that you could use to help you with this? So there must be shared care planning tools available in primary care. There certainly are widespread in in my area of specialty that you can take, uh, sit down, do a, a multi-dimensional needs assessment with someone and, and talk to them about what they think about their different areas of difficulty. And, and just having that exercise of sitting down with someone and pulling out their understanding of themselves and their needs is a very powerful intervention if it's not been done. Mm-hmm. You know, that can then be a springboard to then thinking, well, what else do we need to do in, to embellish it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's another kind of thing that might fall out of this kind of exercise. Um, so that's what the, the kind of, you know, getting onto the same page um, theme is all about. A couple of special bits that I like to add in we're talking about Simon who's showing a flicker of engagement, but what do you do when there isn't any engagement at all is an interesting question. And so there are technical things you can think along those lines. I'm quite keen on this idea of developing engagement strategies. So if somebody's not engaging at all, is there value in developing an engagement plan with the MDT so that you're all trying out some coherent joined up strategies to find out what works rather than just allowing it to be that, oh, Simon doesn't engage, which becomes the myth that then goes with him time and time again. Why not let part that myth and say, uh, he's somebody who we would like to engage. We have some evidence that he's engaged in his life. So what's our strategy to get back to there? So that's quite, that's that's a kind of a little extra flourish that you might put into this dimension of of the framework. Could you give us an example of of that? Well, um, the uh, kinds of cases that I would come across might be about you know, so supposing you had somebody whose interface with the world was limited either through learning disability, autism, or mental health problems or dispositional difficulties, you have to spend a bit of time just charting out the landscape with them as to where they do interact and where they don't. And it's quite useful to involve some of the non-usual suspects like occupational therapists or speech and language therapists who are able to try and put some lenses on how they do interface Mm -hmm. to inform how you might then approach them. Uh, with the autism population, for example, one is very, very aware of a lot of the sensory uh, filters that are in play. Either they they need more sensory stimulus or they're hypersensitive. Mm-hmm. And so approaching somebody in a tone of voice that is distressing to them means that you're not going to engage them. So understanding that about them means that you find different ways of engaging. So you either find the clues in the landscape of where they do engage and build on that, or you see if you can access people like speech and language therapists who can give you some insights about how they're functioning so that they can you can, you can target your strategies better. There isn't any magic formula. You know, it's not that you can turn every single case around, but it's just there is much more to go at than we give ourselves credit for with these things. And I've deliberately not talked about the dispositional uh, interface because sometimes 
difficulty with engaging can be down to someone's disposition towards you in this moment of time because I'm very angry with you at the moment. So I'm going to be as awkward as I can be. So and it's just quite difficult to um, one has to keep away from labeling and badging that without without understanding what's going on. Um, but again, you can still look at the patterns about who they do engage with and who they don't and look for the moments when they've not come, they've not come, and then they come one wet Friday. Why have they come that day? What is it that's clicked that means that you can get onto the same page with them? Some of it's about language too. I remember someone was diagnosed with autism. They were absolutely furious. They didn't want to be labelled with autism, but they did accept they had problems where they, they had these meltdowns every once in a while and they wanted some help with that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be pushed into your into your autism world. Thank you very much. Um, and so, well, okay, well, let's talk about your problems of recurrent meltdowns. Let's shift the language so it works better for you. Um, so it's it's that kind of just positioning it so you find a language with someone that makes sense to them and they educate you about how the world looks to them and you educate them about some of the concepts out there that might be useful to them in order to label up something that's very difficult for them at the moment. And that and that's the kind of heart of the project, if you like. So the next dimension is um, working on is problem areas. What are my problem areas? And this, if you like, is the technical bit. So people, by and large, come with some kind of change in function due to a process, either biological process or psychosocial process, which they want a care plan for that will, will achieve some improvement. And so part of the, of the process is putting a due diligence down to identifying first the number of different problem areas that somebody has, you know, not just treating their diabetes and forgetting they've got these other problems, but how many different problem areas have they have? Mm -hmm. What label are they going to have? And are we happy about those labels? So um, somebody might have PTSD. So where did the idea of PTSD come from? Have we pinned down the assessments appropriate to that? Are we happy with the, with the quality of the framing of the problem area? And then has the, have the right things been done about getting a, an investigation or assessment of that problem area and mobilizing the right technical approaches to the extent they should? Quite a good one example of this is uh, survivors of abuse. So has there been enough done to assess what their particular consequence has been in terms of uh, phenomenology and in terms of uh, assessment of things like arousal management and all the other things that go wrong in post-abuse survival? And has the right care plan been put in place in terms of what you need to do to stabilize, optimize and help people to get past those things? So quite often we've become so snowed under by the storm of stuff that it becomes a blob in our minds. And if we can just break it down into, into what the constituent elements are, they, they do interact. They will interact, these different elements. But have we got the right labels? Have we covered all the ground? Have we, have we done justice to it? As makes sense to the service user, their carers, and the professionals involved, have we got the right portfolio of care plans running to be able to, to be able to do it? And a care plan needs to be developed around anything that's giving significant dysfunction, something that you might maybe even want a specialist opinion on. So, so there's a judgment to be made about how many problem areas that you want to specify. So somebody might be slightly overweight, but you might not want to have a problem area of obesity because that makes the 11th problem and that becomes unwieldy. You know? So what are, the, what are the key core problem areas and have we done justice to that? Just mapping out that is enormously useful. So with Simon, for example, you've got his the grief from his uh, adjustment disorder from his the loss of his parents. You've got his substance use. You've got his episodic um, presentation with affective disorder to the mental health services. You've got existential difficulties from his dislocation and homelessness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you can see he's got a panoply of different disorders, all with different technology. About and he's got his diabetes, of course, and all that as well. Or physics so it all goes on there uh, you can see they all interact but when you think about your vast array of people are they all doing what they should be on that on that scheme does that make sense yeah. so that's the next dimension is about optimizing problem areas 
The next area is about um, what we call it social participation and joining in. Um, it stems from uh, what's called recovery thinking. This idea that just because you've got a particular health problem doesn't mean you shouldn't carry on and living your life. But it's about taking that to another level and understanding a bit more about how somebody rolls, what gives them meaning, how do they structure their lives, what are their organizational assets, etc., etc. So somebody like Simon, for example, you'd be interested in about how he rolls. You know, let's start with how does he structure his day? What does a typical day look like for him? What time does he get up? What, you know, and what are the patternings to that? You know, if he doesn't achieve something, what was it that meant he laid in bed till midday? Was it because he was drunk or because he has trouble with his get up and go? You know, can we try and just get a bit more flavor for what's happening with his organizational? And also, what are the clues about what gives him meaning and purpose? And again, are there tools that you could use? There's something called the good lives model, which um, uh, is becoming quite useful in our area of practice, which kind of just talks about the different areas that people tend to find stimulus satisfaction in. And, and we're all different. And I think there's about 11 different facets that they've managed to crystallize it down to. So is it about having people in your life? Is it about, um, you know, making a difference? Is it about collecting small things that you think are beautiful. You know, what is it that makes you roll? And if if part of what makes Simon roll, having someone in his life, then the idea that he, you'd separate him from his friend isn't going to work, is it? So just giving a bit of a profile to, to how, how people roll, how they function, how they take meaning of life. And in this domain, there are a couple of things, technical things that are really, really useful to think about. Uh, one is about the concept of scaffolding. So if you think of somebody, that the, be the best uh, metaphor is if you think about in one's life, from time to time, one may well have a teenage son who won't get back out of bed in the morning. And so how do you make that possible? So you create a structure that in a loving, caring, positive way facilitates the getting up and the getting the satchel and going to school. That, that process is called scaffolding. And just because one is 40 or 50 or something doesn't mean to say anyone's any less of prone to need scaffolding in, in one's lives. And part of his predicament is he's dislocated. He, his world was wrapped in with his parents. They, their, their organization gave him organization. And so that structure, that scaffolding is gone. So can we think about where scaffolding might come from? Obviously, he's got a friend, but he's only able to do what he can do. So could we have a word with the brother about putting in more regular visits to generate some proactive structuring? Is he somebody which you could engage with alcohol treatment services and get in a regular slot? Could you structure him into his diabetes clinic in such a way that they gave him a phone call to say, you're due in clinic in half an hour and or follow up when he doesn't come? Can you create structure around him using all these people? That, that, if you like, starts to drive the bus in a way that is sympathetic to him and how he rolls, but scaffolds him so he can start to recover that, that self-organization that's become dormant. It's a bit like elderly people go off their feet. You need a physio to get them up and running. And similarly with people who dislocate, they need some external scaffolding to get them up and running, and then it becomes a virtuous circle. So that's the kind of thinking that you probably bring to bear now, the person who helps a lot with this kind of problem are occupational therapists. If you can get hold of occupational therapy, you know, in busloads, get them because they're, they're worth their weight. So that's all the stuff about that. And so there's two remaining dimensions. The first one is keeping people safe and well. And I've done that later because people have already spent a lot of time doing risk assessment and, and there's been less creativity and thought given to all the kind of solving the the functional problems, right? So that there's less pressure on the, on, on the safety systems. But basically 
Is there a good uh, risk management plan in place? Have we got that taped as, as well as we would like? Uh, and is it the right kind of risk management approach, which is collaborative with Simon? So he understands just as much as we do that we're worried that he might lose a leg or something like that. But keeping people safe is not just about the obvious risk of someone uh, coming to harm or causing harm. It's also protecting their autonomy and so have we done enough to understand their capacity, their their choice making and, and their understanding of choices that they're making? Um, have we done enough to understand their legal situation? Have they been, um, you know, are they in a jam because uh, they're, they're sandwiched between policies and, and things like that that are uh, outside their control? So are there things we can do about getting them maybe advocacy or something like that to help shift things on? And the third element in this is, have we done enough to promote well-being? And that's done in two ways. Uh, one is by obviously the healthy living stuff, good diet, exercise, all those sorts of things. And the second one is by making sure that we as professionals don't do them harm by giving them bad medicine. And so have we got a medication management strategy that's on the nose in terms of being clear what's been prescribed? Why is it being prescribed? Is it minimum effective dose? And um, are we doing all we need to do to monitor the uh, side effects and blood levels or whatever it is so so that's that's kind of all all played out in in that side so that that's what that part of the framework looks like and the final bit of the framework is about building momentum and making progress and this comes back to what i was originally saying about this is all about generating value and so how are we capturing a sense of progress reflecting on it feeding it back to ourselves but also feeding it to external stakeholders like commissioners or or family members or whoever need who need to know that we're doing good work here uh, but crucially i suppose is how does simon get a sense of well, am I making progress or not? And so it's about getting into a culture of collaborative care planning with him around each of these different dimensions. So how do you think we're doing, Simon, in terms of your circle of support, in terms of your um, the shared understanding? How does it feel to you? And you you can do a quite a, a nice sort of informal chat around the different dimensions with him uh, and in some instances particularly multidisciplinary settings with the service user there i have been known to take a vote it's called a democratic outcome and you get everyone to vote do you think we're making progress on any of these dimensions since the last time we met and you know it's either yes we made progress no we've not or it, it's neutral and then a bit of a discussion a bit of qualitative data about why do you think we have made it progress or haven't so tuning into the progress element of it. I had a brilliant example uh, where I was doing this with a group of people. Family were there, patient was there, staff was there, and everyone says, you're doing great, you're doing great. And she says, well, that just shows what you know. I think I'm doing terribly. I, the most I would score myself is a naught for no progress, whereas everyone was scoring plus two for lots of progress. And straight away, it really throws into relief the dissonance between that person's sense of progress, yes. their internal world and the external. And you take the lowest vote. So we have to respect that that's how it feels to you, that that's the progress we're making. And Conversely, sometimes a patient says, I think I'm doing great. I think I should have, you know, everything should stop now. I should stop my medicine. And other people are saying, well, I would score it more of a naught or a plus one rather than plus two. So then you, you have to reconcile the tensions. But also you've got to meet again to say, so let's go from review to review, from lily pad to lily pad. You know, let's, let's not try and solve everything today. Let's just work out for now. What are we going to be doing? And when are we going to get together and have another chat about how we're doing against these different dimensions? And that gives you a sense of progress. And let's be mindful of tools that we can use to help us do that. So like the star recovering things and all the self-patient self-rated report tools that are out there and, and the sort of shared care planning things all generate lots of structure for being able to to put this down into into ways that support and drive person-centered care and they're all there it's just a question of assembling them methodically into a into a project and making it go so that's that's pretty much the end of the end of the story 
Um, so do you think we've made any progress uh, in terms of suggestions that might help Simon? Yeah, I definitely think so. There's so many points there that the whole just pulling it out, all of the framework, what matters, what's our approach, who can we use, um, and how do we chart that progress and build the momentum is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's about being pragmatic about it. You can't do everything in one sitting, but you know that this is a project. So you've got to meet again and discuss it again and mm. chip away at it and share ideas. And it becomes, it changes the morale of the team. When I've done this in my field, when the team jo- joins the service user learnt helplessness, you know, it, you, you, you just know <laughs> you've got a problem. Mm. But, if, but, but turning that round away from learnt helplessness it's effective. Yeah, yeah. Everyone starts to feel a bit of positivity. And if you're lucky, the service user does too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, thanks, um, Mark. And if you've got any resources that you want to signpost listeners to, if they want to find out more. So I think the best thing to do is is to signpost people to my website. So it's mark-spurrell.com. And that, if you like, it's, it's a shop window. And from there, there's a there's a button which enables people to contact me so I can give them the password to get into the training website for the Calm framework. I haven't made it freely available because, you know, there's a problem with just having free for all on clinical resources. And, you know, if someone's got the wrong end of the stick who uses it and gets crossed, then it makes, it can make life more complicated. So, so if I know who's wanting to use it and why I can give them the password. So, so that's how it's working at the moment. So I think that's the most useful thing today. There's enormous amount of resource out there. I have published on the model in the International Journal of Integrated Care, but most of this is the kind of thing that doesn't easily fit into a a journal article. Um, it's it's yeah. it's living knowledge rather than printed knowledge. Um, and then our last question is always that we ask um, our guest what their take home points are from today's talk. What do you want the listeners to remember the most um, from today? So I think the most important thing is to not give up. <laughs> it's about harnessing the positives and getting together with others to create a project that you can conspicuously feel is generating progress is generating value but also be clear in your mind that if it's not doing that conversely if you're putting a lot of energy into something that that isn't then then it needs thinking about that there's something that's not hanging together and so you perhaps need some help rethinking it and so something like this model can help you to rethink it you know if people are at odds in terms of what the project is then that's a classic situation where things get stuck and stay stuck. So the patient comes, I want antidepressants, but actually they're very angry and you're not talking the same language. Therefore, you get stuck because of that inability to crystallize the project. So so just be aware that you've got to crystallize the project and then apply the methodology and just keep chipping away. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. That's amazing. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. So Lisa, um, we're meeting the next day to discuss our learning points. So yeah, what what did you take away from our talk with Mark there? Oh, there was just so much, there was so much information, but so much that made me reflect and think, and it was quite a lot to take in at the time, but it was, I think it was, it was a useful framework that he talked through. Um, and I think kind of overall, I liked a couple of the things that he said quite near the beginning when he was setting the scene about how um, when you're in that stuck situation, um, it can often feel really difficult for both you and for the patient and it feels like there's no way yeah. around it and everyone's just a bit frustrated but he'd said um, it's kind of about reinvigorating, reinvigorating positivity back into the clinical situation um, and I just thought that was really nice because I can remember that feeling of being stuck and it just feeling awful and yeah the positivity is gone but finding ways to be able to bring that back I think was really yeah. um, kind of important to say up front and then also just that bit about um, the value-based care and he said um, that uh, kind of from a medical point of view our warrant to interfere in people's lives is adding value that just made me pause and think yeah that's true um, that's that's yeah. where we get our um, yeah our warrant we were, we're allowed to interfere in people's lives because we add value um, so it just makes you really think and reflect on um, on your role and what is of value to the patient? Yeah, it's what what are the aims here? What is the scenario? It's just that how can we engage 
people or what are we really aiming for taking that step back defining the problem using the team um yeah. made me reflect that you know there's so much value to be to work in a team the way that mental health do or can do um and that it would be really lovely particularly for the complex cases to sort of have more time to spend thinking as a team You're right. yeah and even today after after so we spoke to him yesterday and today I just um, was a bit more open to talking about cases with people and going I'm a bit stuck with this one and recognizing that I was stuck and just thinking well I, I need to plan my next my next moves <laughs> I really liked like you'd said about that positivity I think it's changing he said he later said it was changing from learned helplessness as well changing that perspective that everyone having that learned helpless feeling so both the patient and the team and I can definitely think of a few people that I'm going to refer to occupational therapy straight off the bat <laughs> yes definitely he made a good case for them didn't he did and like I, just, I thought it was quite nice the balance so every part of the framework and every dimension that he talked about I thought it was just really nice that he talked about the positive as well as the negative and um, because yeah. I think when you you are considering cases like this and you're using a framework such as this it can get it can be easy to get caught up in all the things that are going wrong and how you're going to fix them but actually that slight change in perspective where you're adding in that um well what's positive about the situation actually from our discussion with some of the stuff that actually brought out some ideas for what you could do next um so yeah I thought that was that was quite nice yeah I definitely for me I was kind of thinking of Simon I was thinking about the alcohol side and I thought you know the the whole adage of you can't um fix the plumbing before you turn off the tap and I thought oh you know that's that's where I'd spend a lot of my time and that clinically might be where we spend a lot of the time but then actually thinking about the whole MDT and yes you've delivered those interventions and you've done what you can do in terms of trying to influence but actually if if we're supporting him in other ways is it then going to help him to then help himself and access services exactly exactly no really interesting chat yeah so hopefully you guys enjoyed it um something a little bit different for your day and if you want to get in touch with us in any way and give us some feedback about episodes like this, then um, you can do. We'll put all of the links in the episode description um, and we'll link to all the bits that uh, Mark described in the chat as well. And yeah, like, subscribe, tell a friend. Um, we always like to spread the word so that more people can get some good education. Yeah. And thank you so much to those who filled out the survey recently. There's been some really fantastic feedback. So thank you. Thank you so much. Until <laughs> um, next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.